Good morning and welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Pittsburgh. We're delighted to have you here for worship. Old friends and new, please pick up the pew pads at the end of the pew and sign your name so that we can be aware of your presence and we can all greet one another at the end of the service. If you wish to talk to a Stephen minister today, the Stephen minister on duty is Teresa Carter and she's available in the narthex wearing a special name tag. There are plenty of um, announcements and events going on, so you can check your bulletin for that. We do have a couple of special announcements today. First, we have Ellie for some youth announcements. Hi, everyone. I'm Ellie, an eighth grade youth here. Something you may not know is that it's once again time for ticket to mission. Please join the youth after services in the fellowship hall for this great opportunity and come check out all of our great baskets that are up for grabs. Thank you, Ellie. We also have Noel. How do they talk so fast? Amazing. So Friday is Optimus Luncheon. Uh, Please sign up in the fellowship hall. If uh, it's too much trouble to make a sandwich for yourself, let me know. I'll make one for you. Look forward to seeing you all there. Thank you, Noelle. Please join us for refreshments in the fellowship hall at the end of worship. We will begin our service with our prelude. Bruce. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there is any wicked way in me. Let us worship God.
Um, uh, please pray with me. Um, creating God in love, you formed and made us that we might love you, your creation, and others. Then when we wandered from you, going our own way, you determined to bring us home to ourselves. As a parent longs and looks for his child, you have longed and looked for us, even inviting us to taste and see that you are good. In your word, we discover the extent of your resolve and the depth of your loving mercy. Again, you gather us and hang, gather her chicks under the safety of her wing to shelter us until we come to comprehend that we are yours. In worship this day, remind us once more of your grace that is patient and rejoicing when the lost is found. Amen. While I kept my silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my inequity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all who are faithful offer prayer to you at a time of distress using even this printed corporate prayer. Gracious God, we confess our resentment concerning the universality of your salvation. The Bible tells us that you love the whole world so much that you sent Jesus to be salvation for all. But in Christendom, we dispute and debate, and some purporting to be followers of Jesus have been downright nasty. We confess the fallibility of our dogmas and doctrines, mystery in your loving ways beyond our grasp. We want to avoid letting you come too close or our neighbor's ills come too close. We confess the fear of intimacy that distances us from you and the exclusivity that keeps us from telling others of the Christian hope, your gift for all. Forgive us, please. Amen. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. be seated. A reading from the fifth chapter of Joshua. The Lord said to Joshua, 
Today I have rolled away from you the disgrace of Egypt. And so that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the Israelites were camped in Gilgal, they kept the Passover in the evening on the 14th day of the month in the plains of Jericho. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on the day they ate the produce of the land, and the Israelites no longer had manna. They ate the crops of the land of Canaan that year. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm going to invite children to join me up here, up the stairs, right here into the chancel. And what we have to do, by the way, is we have to put everybody on this side. So we all have to be on this side of the chancel. So we're all kind of be on this side. Now, and I need to tell you why that we're all on this side. That's because right about where you are, you need to come all the way over here. This is an imaginary sea of reeds. It's kind of like a large lake. And the Israelites were all on this side, and they were being chased by the Egyptians. And then God made the water move, and they could all walk on dry land to the other side. So let's go the other side. We're going to go this way. And then they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Boy, it would take a while to do, wouldn't it? Wander in the wilderness for 40 years? Should we just stand here for 40 years, do you think? Sure. Or do you want to know what happened next? What happened next? Well, they got to the Jordan River, and it was the spring of the year. It was near the time of Passover. And um, they got to the Jordan River, and since it was a spring, the snows from Mount Hermon were melting, and the hillsides that had a lot of rain, because that's a rainy season in that part of the world... And because of that, the Jordan River was a torrent of water, and they had to get to the other side. So guess what happened? They didn't swim. God made all the water move to the side. And for a second time, and most people do not know this, they walked on dry land again to the other side. And that's part of the Bible that most people know nothing about, that that happened twice. And when they got to the other side, they had a big party. It was a party like they had had for 40 years before. And that party is what we have set up here today. It was a reminder of the last time Jesus had supper with his disciples. And that took place on Passover. Now, I'm not going to tell you all about Passover, but I'm going to give you this reminder. Every time we have communion, we think about that Passover dinner, which would have happened officially in the spring on Passover, and we're going to be doing that here fairly soon. It's going to be called Maundy Thursday. It was a Thursday night that Jesus had the dinner with his disciples, and they remembered this crossing stuff. Well, 
we're going to do that and we're going to taste some of the things that they actually ate that evening this Maundy Thursday. And the word Maundy, which we use in the church, is a big fancy word. I want to tell you what it means. It means commandment. It means commanded, like a king would command, not, this would be a nice thing if you came to my house for dinner. It didn't say that. It was, you will come. I order you to come. Very interesting. And the one who ordered it was Jesus. Yeah, it was Jesus. He ordered people to celebrate this meal. It was called, do this in remembrance of me. He didn't say, it'd be kind of nice if you did this. But do this. So Monday Thursday is coming up in a couple of weeks. You'll have to pay attention to the bulletin so you could come and do that dinner on Thursday. But today we want to remember this crossing that really happened in a special event. And sometimes God will part waters for us. It's not real water, but he'll part difficult problems so that we have an opportunity to serve God. Let's pray about this. Lord God, we give you thanks for this day and for the way in which you have sometimes made a way in a very difficult place for us. Thank you, God, for doing that. Be with us today. Help us to enjoy the day that you have made. Help us to rejoice in it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great time in Sunday school. Thanks for coming up. Much as there were crossings of the river, our epistle lesson for today is a pivot point in Paul's writing and in Paul's theology. Prior to this place in chapter 5 of the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul has been admonishing those congregations to whom he's writing for all the things that they're doing wrong in fighting with one another. In this pivot point, he points out what now we might do. I invite you to hear God's word of reconciliation to each one of us. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Behold, everything has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us this ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
We have a collect today, and um, sometimes I think that we have these words that appear like a collect, and we don't have any idea what they mean. Historically, in the life of the church, there was often a pause for prayer before scripture reading. And the purpose of that was to help us focus our thoughts that God might help us understand the word we're about to read or hear. And we're to collect and focus our thoughts. So that's what a collect is, to collect our thoughts, to present them to God. A man had two sons, and the younger said to him, I want my inheritance now. It is mine. His father divided the property with him. That son spent it all and was soon feeding swine. But then he remembered his father providing. He thought he would beg to go home as a slave. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his field to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Get the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. They began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, well, your brother's come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. 
He became angry. He refused to go in. His father came out, began to plead with him. He answered his father, Listen, for all these years, I have been working like a slave for you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. The father said to him, Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. Because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. The word of the Lord.
I think that if I had my way, I might have included the complete lyrics in the bulletin this morning for a song that most of you know as American Pie. When Don McLean wrote the song, he entitled it The Day the Music Died. You'll remember parts of it. Uh, Long, long time ago, I can still remember how the music used to make me smile and I knew if I had my chance that I could make those people dance, and maybe they'd be happy for a while. But February made me shiver. With every paper I deliver, bad news on the doorstep. I couldn't take one more step. I can't remember if I cried when I read about his widowed bride, but something touched me deep inside the day the music died. So... Bye-bye, Miss American Pie, drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. And them good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye, singing, this will be the day that I die. There are about six stanzas to the song, and then each of the stanzas has about three separate sections, so it's a very long song. There's Christian imagery in it. And given as I am to thinking about poetry often in lyrics and including some of that in worship, your memory might be jogged if I give you the ending which goes something like this. And in the streets the children screamed, the lovers cried, and the poets dreamed. But not a word was spoken because all the church bells were broken. And the three men I admire most, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, they caught the last train for the for the coast, the day the music died. Don McLean began writing that song at Saratoga Springs, New York, at a little restaurant, the Cafe Lena, in 1971. He continued to jot down the lyrics in Cold Spring, New York, and then in Philadelphia he finished it, and the song made its debut at Temple University in Philly. The album, American Pie, on which the song appears, was recorded and released in 1971, and it was a number one hit in the U.S. for four weeks at the beginning of 1972. There are some music writers that claim that this is the song of the last century. Except to acknowledge that he first learned about Buddy Holly's death on February the 3rd, 1959, when McLean was age 12, while he was folding newspapers for his paper route the following day on February 4 of that year. You can understand the line, February made me shiver with every paper I deliver. It seems to indicate, as most have believed, that Don McLean wrote this song out of the memory he had for Buddy Holly. And why not? He actually dedicated the album to Buddy Holly. When asked what the lyrics all mean, he said, it means that I don't have to work again. Well, he didn't. He sold millions and millions of copies of this. Then when asked point blank what it all means, he said, you will find many interpretations of my lyrics, but none of them from me. Sorry to leave your all on your own like this, but songwriters should make their statements, then move on, and they should maintain a dignified silence about what they write. Then in February 
of 2015, last year, Don McLean announced that he would reveal the meaning of his lyrics when his original handwritten notes and words, that manuscript, went up for auction in New York City last spring. That document was sold on the 7th of April. And the lyrics and the notes in his handwriting were sold for $1.2 million. Another reason not to have to work much. In the sale catalog notes, McLean revealed the meaning of his lyrics. He wrote, Basically, in American Pie, all things in America are heading in the wrong direction. Life is becoming less idyllic. People aren't going to church as much anymore. It is becoming the day the music died. So, what, pray tell, does this have to do with these verses from the Old Testament book of Joshua? That's probably what you want to know. Rather than wait for any sermon notes to be sold at auction, I think that we should point out right here at the start that when I read those words in the book of Joshua, I thought of this song. Those words that say, on the day after Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain, and the manna ceased that day. Made me think of the song because this text is a record of the day the manna died. For 40 years, the Israelites had been wandering in the desert. They never had to wonder about what they were going to eat. Every morning, God provided manna, and as wonderful as it was to reinstitute the Passover and eat the produce of the promised land, they would now have to till and plant and sow and reap and harvest and grind and knead and bake to get the bread. They'd have to work at feeding themselves. The gravy train was about to end. They were going to be on their own. And it's somewhat similar, really, to a verse in the book of Deuteronomy, a little earlier. The Lord says, During the 40 years that I led you through the wilderness, your clothes did not wear out, nor did the sandals on your feet. Seemingly, in one of the little heralded miracles of the Old Testament, the Israelites wore the same shoes for 40 years. Never wore out. Never had to go to the store. Now, this snippet of biblical narrative from Joshua reveals far more than what we might begin to see at a quick glance. When you read it within its wider context of the earlier chapters of Joshua in particular, let alone all of chapter 5, you get some additional insight. I think that over the centuries, the Christian church has elected to read this passage because it contains the mention of the Passover observance just before they take the promised land. and So we're about to have Passover, and so the churches thought we should read this. 
In a couple of weeks, we'll mark Maundy Thursday. And um, remember, it's a command. You will remember how in Exodus chapter 12 and 13, the Israelites were spared the devastation of the tenth and final plague, that of the death of the firstborn males. They would be spared if they placed some of the blood of the lamb that they were to consume that night on the door lintels of their homes, and the angel of death would pass over their home. God would literally not afflict their firstborn. In Joshua chapter 5, the Exodus scene is replicated with this twist. Although the Jordan River was in flood stage with the Israelites got to the promised land, God miraculously dammed up the water a second time. Then following the crossing westbound across the Jordan, all of the males were to be circumcised. They had not had any circumcisions for 40 years. The early parts of Joshua tells us that no other surgeries like this had occurred. And now they were to use knives of flint and several hundred thousand men were to have this surgery. See, you're just now beginning to discover a little more understanding the meaning of the day the manna died. Now, the name of the place where all this happened is Gilgal. The word Gilgal in Hebrew actually means to roll away. Most think of it as the place where the waters of the Jordan were rolled away, but the text says further that Gilgal signifies the removal and rolling away of Israel's former disgrace, its slavery, and its sinfulness. So after this massive circumcision and memorial celebration of Passover, an abrupt change of diet occurs. No longer are they to eat only the God-provided manna, that they would now eat the crops from Canaan. And the word manna in the Bible is connected with response of the Israelites when they first saw it, and those two words go together in Hebrew, man, who, which is translated, here's the translation for the word manna, What is this stuff? So every day they would eat, what is this stuff? It's described in chapter 1631 of Deuteronomy, like coriander seed, white. The taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Sometimes they complained about uh, the manna. They were tired of it. Other times it was just very easy. Maybe some of you have heard Keith Green's song entitled, So You Want to Go Back to Egypt? In it, it has the lines, what? Oh, no, manna again. Manna waffles, manna burgers, manna bagels, filet of manna, manna patties, but manna bread. It would have been tough. It's the day the manna died. It was a wonderful day in some ways, but it was also signaling that some of the gravy train was going to end. It's the feeling we get from Don McLean when he helps us remember the day the music died. 45 years ago, 
what has happened to America since that time. Some might say, and in the streets the children scream, the lovers cry, the poets dream. But not a word was spoken, the church bells were all broken. It's not really a message about America today, that's not what I intend. Although I must tell you that some of the political rhetoric that's been around is so disgusting, it is just a symptom of our decreased civility. I am becoming so weary of everyone using the word fight. All the political speeches fighting for me. Can't we advocate for some policy sometime? That's different. Must we see everything through fighting? Can't candidates and legislators find a different word and let the fighting alone for a while? Why is everybody so angry? I mean, you can't know how hard it's been this week to be thinking about these verses from Joshua and trying to avoid the gospel story from Luke 15 that shows up in the lectionary this Sunday. The story of the prodigal son is my favorite story in all the Bible. I think the most important lessons for relationships, those we have within our families, with each other, and with God, can be explored in this story. I just want to tell it and retell it again and again, but I said to myself, no, Bruce, you can't do that. You've been avoiding looking at a passage like this from Joshua forever, so why don't you at least see what God might have to say to the people in Pittsburgh from that? But I did find one brief intersection of these stories, one from Joshua and 1 Corinthians 15, when I read about Bob Combs, who is a hog farmer from Las Vegas, who has a rather unusual way of turning trash into treasure. Combs collects the uneaten scraps of food from casinos and feeds them to his pigs. Why? Because there's so much protein in the stuff that they don't eat. His pigs now grow at twice the normal speed He is one of our nation's richest pig farmers. And what he does is actually pretty good for the environment. He spends his days doing this incredible service. I know he himself personally smells rather bad, but God bless him. He is making a great living with these pigs. If you ask him, did you just follow your passion here? He will laugh at you. Bob Combs just has been offered $60 million for his farm He's turned it down because he says it's minimally worth three times that. He didn't follow his passion. He said he stepped back, he watched where everybody was going, and he decided to go the other way. I thought, now there's an idea. The intersection for me was that the younger son in the story of the prodigal son was on the gravy train. He had requested and received his inheritance in advance of his father's death. He got all the cash, and then he lost it and found himself feeding swine. This is not a good thing for a good Jewish boy to do. 
He didn't have the advantage of Bob Combs casino scraps, and for him, the manna of money died, and life became hard. As a pastor, I wish I could wave some magic hand and make the world the way I think it ought to be some days, or how I think God might want it to be. Recently, in January, I was on a flight to Columbia, South Carolina, to catch up with a team from this congregation who had gone there uh, as a Presbyterian disaster assistance team in Columbia. Maybe you're unaware, 46,000 homes in September and October in Columbia, South Carolina, under three feet or more of water. There were a lot of houses there to repair. Most people drove down. I caught a plane. I try to be friendly to the people I'm sitting near. And so I struck up a conversation. I talked with this one woman who was beside me. And um, our plane hit a patch of very severe turbulence. And for just a few moments, you could just feel the fear in the fuselage. Well, she looked at me. She had learned that I was a pastor. And she said, kind of, you're a man of God. Can't you do something about this? I was a little flustered. I said some things about stuff like this before, but in a limited way, I said something like, I'm sorry, ma'am, I'm in sales, not management. (laughs) For many, the manna has died. And there's not a lot I'm going to be able to do about that. Time of Passover is fast coming. And as fearful as it might be, we might be helped to consider that God has no plans to abandon us. He did not abandon the Israelites. God will be with us, and God has plans of hope and healing, even though we may, from time to time, go through some pretty rough patches. We're being asked to trust in God for the Passover journey. And in order to do that, we may have to abandon our penchant for glamping. I know you want to know what that is. This is camping that has become glamorous. I call it glamping. Camping with high-tech tents and plush amenities. You know, camping used to be a rugged activity. It required you to leave civilization behind. You would head into the wilderness, you'd rough it a little bit. But no, not anymore. Today, you can buy a Coleman air mattress with a built-in alarm clock and nightlight. There are tents that now come equipped with lighting systems and roll-down windows. They have direct TVs that are offered by portable satellites, and many campsites now have wireless Internet, so you can do whatever you want to do on the Internet in your tent. This is not camping. This is glamping. Camping that is glamorous with all of the comforts of home. It's still an experience of nature, but one that includes plenty of plush amenities. For example, thanks to air mattresses with built-in speakers for MP3 players, you do not have to sacrifice sound quality while you sleep under the stars. Is this a positive development? Or is it a sign of the apocalypse? 
Some national park officials are feeling surprisingly good about the trend. According to the Washington Post, employees at several national parks will do a complete campsite setup for you for a fee. You get a tent that sleeps four, a set of chairs, a propane stove and lantern, internet hookup. All you have to do is show up with your marshmallows. What's the point of all the hand-holding? There's an expectation at a certain level of comfort people will not go outside to find. If folks are going to venture out and go camping, they want to be comfortable. Otherwise, they're going to stay at home and just do Facebook. So glamping is really all about getting people to buy camping equipment and go outside. That's not a bad thing. Parks are going to shut down unless people use campsites and learn about our world and what we need to do to conserve it and have a love for nature. When kids spend so much time hooked up to an electronic umbilical cord, says environmental educator Charles, things better change. They need to be weaned away from the manna of modernity. And I thought she was right. Our Joshua text has been telling us that the people of Israel enjoyed a glamping experience. They made their way through the wilderness and route to the promised land for 40 years, wandering. They could count on the gift of manna every day. Bread from heaven. They didn't have to cook it. Then the manna died. No more glamping in Gilgal. Here's the thing about glamping. It's a means to an end, not an end in itself. Same for manna. God provided it to the Israelites so that they could survive their journey across the wilderness and grow in faith along the way. But once they reach the promised land, no more manna. God knows that sometimes the crutches need to be there And at other times, they need to be set aside once people are able to walk on their own. So why does our faith falter when it seems that God's gifts have disappeared? We love our manna, just like we adore our air mattresses with built-in nightlights. After enjoying a certain level of comfort, whether it's a stable marriage, a steady job, a strong financial position... We feel abandoned by God when times get a little tougher. But is it God who is abandoning us? Or is it we who are abandoning God? The day the church bells die. Maybe God hasn't left us. Instead, it could be the Lord is pushing us forward into another stage, a life of trust for our future. Now, some in our fellowship have been meeting with Rod Froman and discovering the Apocrypha, those books that were written between Malachi in the Old Testament and Matthew in the New Testament. They are not in most of our Bibles. It's interesting to note that the book of Baruch in the Apocrypha, the author states there that the manna 
will fall again when the Messiah returns to our hearts. Gives new meaning to us, doesn't it? Thankful that God provides us the bread of life in the person and form of Jesus Christ and all that Jesus taught us. Let us dedicate those gifts that we return to God using even this printed prayer. As a witness to our faith and Christian hope, and in gratitude for our experience of your grace in our own lives, we make this offering for your encompassing purpose in the world, O God. Receive and bless our giving our serving and our loving and our receiving, we pray. Amen. There is a part for you in the words of invitation today. We're part of the blessing of God's new creation. As we are now welcomed, may we share God's grace. There's no room for grumbling in God's gracious kingdom. There's no place to question God's loving embrace. The outcast, the sinner, the poor, struggling mother, the addict, the seeker, the one who is lost...
that this our worldwide, when God's will is done, ready for feasting, we watch through the night, tending our lamps till the new day's begun. This is how God readies us for the light. These are the stories that Jesus imparts, filled with the Spirit who joins us as one. Born through our voices, our hands and our hearts, this is a new world where God's will is done. Please pray with me, friends. It is truly right and our greatest joy to give you thanks and praise, O Lord our God, creator and ruler of the universe. You are holy, God of majesty, and blessed is Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Sent to be our Savior, he took our flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. His touch brings healing, even in the most dark and desperate places. To all who follow him, he gives life abundantly. And so remembering all your mighty and merciful acts, we take this bread and this wine from the gifts that you have given us and we celebrate with joy the redemption won for us in Jesus Christ and the reconciliation that we are called to do through the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord God, that you would accept this, our service of praise and thanksgiving, as a living and holy offering of ourselves, that our lives might proclaim the one crucified and risen. Amen. On the night of our Lord's arrest, he took a simple loaf of bread, as I do today, ministering in his name, and he did as he was greatly accustomed to doing. He gave thanks to God for it. And then he did something unusual. He broke it. And he gave it to each one of his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body, broken for you. Do this. Mandatum, command. Do this in remembrance of me. In gratitude and obedience, we do.
In a very similar way, after supper, our Lord took the cup as I do, ministering in his name. And he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant poured out in my blood for the forgiveness of sin. Behold the cup of the new covenant poured out for you. The cup of salvation. Drink you all of it. Build the cup of salvation. 
I'm just scanning the congregation to make certain that Claire Brown is not here today. Correct? Good. Just a reminder that we're sending out birthday cards for her 100th birthday, which is on April 1st. While she won't be able to be with us in worship either the Sunday before or after, we are participating in the celebration that will be taking place at Valley Manor. So if you would like to send her a card to Valley Manor or use one of our cards and we'll send it for you, please, let's give her 100 birthday cards for her 100th birthday. And Lee Fox, it's so grand that you could celebrate your dad's 100th birthday last week. That doesn't happen very frequently in our lives. Congratulations, and I hope your family had a great time. Rick Young, happy birthday. You don't look a day younger. (laughs) Enjoy, sir. We also have these prayers that we're lifting up. Jen Lake, we're in continued prayer for Mackenzie Mellum and this miracle-working God that has gotten her through her heart surgery in California and for all the complications that will come thereafter, but may they feel sustained, and may God bless this new little girl. We're also continuing to pray for Betty Olin, who experienced heart failure, and she came in and out of Strong Memorial Hospital. She now has a a renewed and regular sinus rhythm, so we give thanks and praise. We're also in continuing prayer for a very extended family in our congregation. Many of you might have heard that young Olivia Marsh was brought back from London where she was studying on an emergency flight so that she could have back surgery to have a tumor removed from her spine. The surgery was successful. They did find out that the tumor is cancerous, but here's the good news. It is a rare form of sarcoma that is curable. And so with about a year's worth of chemo, they're expecting that she will be able to regain her life back. We're hopeful because she has feeling in her legs and we're praying, expecting a miracle. So thank you for all that have been pulling for them. The Marsh family has asked that you honor their need for um, sustaining her in this time of transition by please not calling or visiting the hospital, but cards and prayers are certainly appreciated. Friends, please join me. Oh, one last thing. Choir, I usually hear Yesu joy of man's desiring at weddings. What a joy to hear it with the words today. So thank you for that. And if you have an opportunity, look in the bulletin because it does have the words. Thank you, Alan Reeve, for sending those faithfully every week. You may not hear it. You may not see how grateful we are when God is our gift, when Jesus is that gift to each one of us. Please pray with me, friends. For us to try and hear your word, some days more difficult than others. So many of us follow you in fear, follow in the hope that someday we just might qualify, hoping that someday we'll do something that shows we're good enough for your approval, believing that maybe if we try hard enough, you'll find us, not leave us, be lost. Lord God, today we pray for those who feel a special need of your presence. For those who feel bereft, left alone, shunted out. We pray for those who feel empty, 
and lost. We thank you, O God, for the length you were willing to go to reclaim us and your world. We thank you for your patience, a patience that brings us slowly but surely to realize the sin we know can be forgiven. We pray for others, for those who find their way home to you by some other route than ours, but who in Jesus' words are of another sheepfold. We pray for freedom and a wider knowledge of your love for those who wrap their faith or their church around them as security. We pray for those who choose to live without you. They might feel in their souls the impress of your persistent call. So may we be used to be agents of reconciling hope, even as we try to put into practice in our lives the prayers we often say when we quote Jesus, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Lord, speak to me that I may speak in living echoes of your tone. As you have sighed, so let me speak. Thy wandering children lost and lone. Oh, lead me, Lord, to thee, the wandering, the wavering feet. Oh, lead me, Lord, Just as you will, and when, and where, until your blessed day, I see your rest, your joy, your glory You will find a part for yourselves in today's collect and the charge at the end. We're part of the blessing of God's new creation. The world may not see it, but we know it's true. For God in Christ Jesus has given salvation. The old life is gone. God makes everything new. We're part of the blessing, for we are God's children. We're loved and forgiven. We're welcomed back home. Go in peace. May the love of God the Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the blessing and comfort of the Holy Spirit go with us and abide with us today and in the life everlasting. Amen.
got to put the needle point away.